So if you want to get to the athlete, you have to get to the human behind the athlete first. That was Imani Oliver, and this is the Prime Podcast. Yeah. You ready? <laughs> hey. Let's go. Bet. And welcome back to the Prime Podcast. Today, I am so excited. I have a former athlete of mine who is now a pretty tremendous athlete. Well, she was a tremendous athlete back then, too. She's a, uh, her name is Amani Oliver, an Olympic-level athlete in track and field. Uh, she graduated from Princeton. Uh, the past five years, she's been doing some great, great things to be one of the top U.S. competitors in the world's triple and uh, women's triple jump, a uh, member of Team USA Track and Field, and a six-time national medalist. Uh, Additionally to training for the upcoming Tokyo Games, Imani has been working in technology for the past three years, working as a software engineer at the Home Depot. And we had talked about this off air. We won't bore you with the software engineer stuff in the Home Depot. But it's very interesting. We might, if I we get to it, we might get to it a little bit. Definitely a strong advocate providing access to, to STEM education for underrepresented communities. And super excited. And we were talking before, just reminiscing a little bit about some of the things we've done doing back in the day. So, Imani, thanks for hanging out with me, taking some time on your Saturday morning of to course. come and chat. Yes, I'm so excited to be here and to chat on air. <laughs> about on the- air, officially. <laughs> like, we've been talking, we talk through text and, and Instagram and keep in touch and follow each other and do whatever. But this right. is the first time we've spoke, like, in real life in a, in a while. Let's go back. This is what we were talking about before. We're going to go back, like, 10, 12 years when Imani was in high school. What sparked her interest in track and field? That's what kind of where I want to go. So Imani just recently finished fourth in the triple jump at uh, U.S. Olympic trials, correct? Yes, correct. Yes, and fourth. Uh, <laughs> she's also, uh, there's an asterisk, which is silly, but she is the New York City triple jump record holder. They have an what? asterisk. Because, like, what are you the asterisk is there asterisk? because they didn't have a wind gauge. Which is so crazy. Like, I didn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, which is so silly, which is so silly. But she holds it. She yeah. holds the record. She's a, she was a state champion when she was in high school. So she has some some things that she has accomplished. I like to think that I'm a little piece of that process. But she's been she's done a lot, a lot of this on her own. And we're going to talk. And you're going to find out why as she gets talking and, and things like that. So take us back to kind of like your family is a track and field family. Yeah. 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 So let's um, talk about like what, it, like how track and field is in your family, kind of like what sparked you to go into track and field and then specifically the jumps. The triple yeah. Jump. Um, I mean, for me personally, and I'll tell this story all the time, even though I have older brothers that started track before I did, that was definitely my idea. <laughs> so in 2004, <laughs> um, 2004, I was 11 and we were watching the Olympics. I'm going to say it was in Athens. And that's when I decided I wanted to be an Olympian. That's when I decided I wanted to get serious about track and field. And my family's, my entire family's Jamaican. I'm first generation um, Jamaican. And so I think that just having that influence of just a culture that is really completely (laughs) engrossed in track and field culture 
I think that that kind of definitely pushed me in that direction and seeing how exciting it was to have and to be a part of the track and field community at that young age. And I knew I wanted to be an athlete. My older brother, my oldest brother actually went to University of Kentucky for 400. Next down brother was an 800 runner. He went to Penn for the 800. And then my next down brother, I have no sisters. <laughs> Uh, Cornell and also ran the 800 there for a bit. So we were all, everyone was running things and I was like, okay, I don't want to run. I'm definitely going to be jumping, doing something different. So yeah, that's how I got interested in track and field. My family was, you know, we were those, that family that went to meets on Saturdays and spent our entire day in the heat sweltering university sun, um, just watching events and sort of getting ready for the next event. We did pretty much like everything while we were there. So yeah, that's how it all started. Yeah. And then how, like, wh- when did you first start jumping? Was it in high jumping, school or was it before yeah. high school? That was in high school. So, I mean, I started running. I was on the track team, like a club team when I was, I think, 12 was my first, like when I first started. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was 14. Um, I was a sophomore in high school. I had just gotten to Midwood because I, I wasn't there my freshman year. Uh, they were like, yeah, you're tall, you're lanky, you can probably like jump or something. And I remember the head coach at the time, Coach Cohen, he put like some hopscotch lines on the cafeteria floor and was like, oh yeah, okay. that's how he used to tell to see who could who could be the jumper, like how far everyone could jump. That's right. I, I remember that now. It's funny. The first day of practice. Yeah, and it was like, what? Anybody can hopscotch. But yeah. luckily, like, I was a good a good hopscotcher. I don't know. <laughs> um, and so it was just like, you'll put the lines down on, like, the tile. You just have yeah. to jump to the tile, and that's how I did it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's all you got to do is a cat. Yeah. Um, so that's where I learned what the triple jump, like, the sequence was. Like, either left, left, right, or right, right, left. And yeah, that's kind of how it started. And I had a background in ballet. I did, I did ballet for seven years when I was younger. So I was like, oh, it's just like dancing. Like, I can definitely make it to that tile. I can make it to that tile. So that's how it started. Yeah. <laughs> and then your sophomore year, you were solo, right? You didn't really have a, a quote unquote jump coach, correct? Yeah. Like I was, there was a guy that came in and out. There was like a, I mean, Cohen was there and I... Sort of was just like figuring it out. But like my first jump, which like, I don't know if this is good, but I think I, my first jump was like 36. Yeah. And that's good and for at a high the school. time. Like that was like, yeah. that was good. And I was 14 and I was like, okay, I guess that's good. I don't yeah. even know what that is in meters. It's probably like 10. Yeah. Cause you're like, you're, you're opposite now. Like I'm so into feet yeah. because when high school you do everything feet. And then when you get to college, yeah. you're like, oh, I jumped 12, four today. I was like, I don't know what that means. Right. Like my brain is. <laughs> anything under 12 meters so it's just like yeah, that's, yeah everything's meters now yeah yeah everything's meters now but yeah so i i mean i did pretty well and i was like scoring well like you know to me i was just like i'm beating some of these older kids i was also younger um right. so even though i was you know a sophomore i was the age of a freshman so i was right. doing that and beating kids who were like 17 18 at 14 so i was like yeah i think i'll keep doing this because i like winning <laughs> yeah, so, I like I like winning. I like winning. Yeah. She goes through her, her her sophomore year, right? And if you're not, if you're listening, like New York City sports, if you, depending on where which part of the country you come from, high school sports are very different. Uh, New York City sports, in particular, there's usually one coach kind of allocated for each sport, and then if you get somebody to help out, it's a bonus. So because her particular track team at Midwood High School, which is I I come in the next year, 
there was an assistant because they had such a high volume of athletes on the team. Like I think if you had over 50 athletes or something, the, the city allocated you an assistant coach. And I think our teams usually range from like 70 to 80 girls. Not many of which were, were very good at track and field, but that's not. <laughs> a lot of them were doing it because in New York City at that, at that particular high school, uh, you could take a sport and get out of physical education class. Yeah. So I would say probably half of those girls did that for that particular reason and to just exercise and socialize, which isn't, there's nothing wrong, right or wrong for that. It's just different priorities, but it does make trying to be competitive, um, a challenge for the girls who, you know, for like, I think at one time, and we'll talk about this a little bit in a second, but at one time when I got there, there was almost like a segregation of teams, because there was a group of girls who were highly competitive that I specifically worked with and then the rest of the team. And it was kind of like this weird separation between the groups because of the, there was like a, like I said, there was probably like 10% of the girls who were there. No, probably more, maybe 20%. You know, like this 80-20 rule applies for everything. 20% of the girls who really wanted to do better and really wanted to get good at track and field. And they were already very good. And many of them, just like Imani had said before, came from Caribbean backgrounds to where track and field was like a thing in their culture and their in their family history so they wanted to be good at it and they were and they were good at it and so i i stepped in uh i i had become i was coaching football at midwood at the time and uh, somebody had, you know i was trying to be a physical education teacher there so somebody had uh was like hey they have a track girls track and field uh, opening available um would you want to be interested in being the assistant i was like yeah i've never really coached track and field before um, but I'm, I'm into like helping whatever. And so I started at indoor track and at first the head coach who was there, he was like, Oh, you're only going to work with like this one the girl. Throwers. Yeah. Just the throwers. Yeah. Was, there was like two girls working at a time. So I'm there's, like, I'm telling you, there's 80 girls on the team and he's like, yeah. here, you can work with two people. And then I'm like wandering around. We go to the gym. Uh, and I, I remember this, Amani, we were just talking about before and Amani doesn't remember it. So I go to the gym to take like the two throwers and I see these two girls like jumping in the, in the gym. And it's like Imani and another girl, Tony, who is older and how how the team worked at the time, because we were also just talking about this, is that the older girls, like if you knew an event, like you taught all the younger girls. So Tony at the time was a senior, I believe, and Imani was a junior. So she was a year older, two years older. Yeah. And then with hurdles was the same thing. Like if you were a hurdler, like you taught everybody else how to hurdle, like the head coach, because he there were so many people on the team, like he didn't really have the time you know, in his defense, he didn't have the time or the resources to be able to help with all the different field events or the different other things. Yep. So it was, a, it was a lot of like top down approach, seniors helped the junior, you know, so on and so forth. So they were in the gym and I, and I, then I went up to the coach and I was like, Hey, can I just work with the jumpers too? Like if I'm working with throwers and I have two kids, I mean, I'm sure I could take on another two kids. It's not a lot, <laughs> it's not a yeah. lot of work. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So then we turned into that and then, you know, that year, um, you know, we were working on different technical stuff. And then Imani had, you know, we had a great, a, a good junior year. And she had entrusted with me, like, obviously being a coach to help do stuff, even without any of that, like, background knowledge. But for me, uh, being reflective and also not liking to lose and liking to win, I, I did my research. And I learned a lot about it, both with Imani, uh, learning how to do things and it resulted in 
some great success for her as well as the other girls who ended up being a part of that group as the, the year progressed. It turned into a jumps, throws, and kind of short sprint group. And it turned into like some really, really, really highly competitive, outstanding young women who, who you know, I credit them to all their hard work and dedication to that. So that was a special time, just even recapping and thinking about it. I know, just like thinking about yeah. it, right? Like that team was, the, the, the girls that were on that team are pretty incredible. And I keep in touch with a lot of them, Imani being one of them. And it's funny because when one of my daughters had a, had a, a cyst on her thyroid and she was in the hospital, and one of the other girls who was on the team was doing a, a residency at that hospital. And oh, she wow. came and Jillian was there. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and Jillian, and Jillian, one of the other, she was a jumper too. A little, she's like, it used to be funny when we'd go to Penn Relays after. She's like the smallest girl. And if you've ever seen like a, in a like a high level sprinter, they're all huge. And, a, and she would be running like a 200 and she'd be like this little, <laughs> she's yeah. like five foot tall, but she right. was fast, man. She's fast. But, right. uh, but she came to came to see my wife every day, came to see us every day. She'd walk down, we, we'd get a cup of coffee and chat and talk. And it was just so cool to see, you know, these girls develop into, you know, the, the women that they are today, which is really, really cool. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so one of the questions I want to ask, and this came up last week. So I talked to a, a gentleman named Dan Chambliss, and he did a lot of research on like what makes athletes the difference between like really great athletes and like kind of like the not like the people who do the same amount of work, but don't become great. So he was talking about the differences and he wanted me to ask you because I talked about you because it was literally just after the trials. It was like the day after. Oh, wow. And he, and he said, you got to ask her this. He's like, what did I do? Right. Me? Like, what did I do? Right. As a coach for you. And like, what did I do wrong to make you to, to like help you be successful? And I'm going to preface this with it. So I was just telling you, I was reading this book. So this is what the definition of a coach is, what they define what a coach is, to take you somewhere you want to go when you can't get there yourself. Okay. And I can see that, how that, you know, even outside of sports, that can be applicable. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. we'll, so we'll so, start with what I did right. Are you going to ask what you did wrong next? <laughs> I am, obviously. Yeah. I want to okay. know. Okay. So, but no, I, I don't even think they're that like my first thought was all the things that kind of went right, which are some of it seems serendipitous, like even the way you describe like how the team came together. That was just a perfect storm of accidents, right? Yeah. <laughs> like for I sure. accidentally got to Midwood, even that. And I accidentally started hopscotching one day in my sophomore year. So um, even just that, I think a lot of things are luck, right? But on the other end, I think what you did, um, which is something that I even value now and, you know, I talk to people even about because I've had multiple coaches since then, is I had the idea to be great. You supported the idea to be great. Like you also believed it and that it could happen. And then you allowed me the space to fill in, you know, whatever the criteria were to be great. So. I think a lot of times coaches sort of stifle their athletes by saying, this is how we got to do it. This is how we'll be great. I think it was more of a creative process with us where we had these conversations all the time. We were watching the YouTube videos like together, like analyzing video. And even though like those seem like, you know, obvious things that coaches should do now, it's not obvious. And I think I benefited a lot back then, even learning the model of how to be an athlete from being in that like situation where we were like, okay, well, I didn't do well, or I want to do well. And this is what people who are doing while well they're doing. What does that look like? What is the, how do we break that down? 
And I think being a part of that part of the process where we actually created, you know, the end product of being state champion and record holder and things like that, being a part of that process, I think was more valuable than just kind of like sitting back, taking orders and being like, okay, I'll just show up to practice and do what you say. So I think that was something that like, when I didn't have it, you know, years later with other coaches, I was just like, that's not how this is supposed to work. Like this is supposed to be a creative process. I'm doing this because it's fun. This is an art, right? One of my better coaches too, since then, I would, I'll just go ahead and shout him out. Lee Van Sands, that's the person that I've had my most recent personal record with. It was a creative process. We sat down, we watched video. It was like a conversation. So I would say between, you know, good coaches and not so good coaches, that's the biggest separation is having the athlete take ownership over every part of the process, just like, you know, the, the coach does and it's collaborative in that way. Awesome. And I think that if you, if you go back, if I go back to that definition and I think what you're talking about is like, you know, there's some coaches who just give out orders and they kind of like blindly expect that the athlete follow. Right. And this is one of the things that Imani, Imani was early rated as, as a difficult athlete to work with because she questioned things and she had an opinion and she wanted to understand why she was doing something. So like, why, how is this going to make me better? Right. Which for me is, isn't an issue because we had, because we had these conversations and like why, and it also made me a better coach because like, okay, why are we working on this particular thing right now? How is this going to improve something? So that as a coach that, you know, I could be defensive and be like, just because I said so, or I could be like, no, this is, we're going to work on this because I think it's going to help you in your first phase blah, 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 here, this and that, the other thing. And then Imani in turn has more buy-in because now she trusts that I'm actually like thinking about her getting better and thinking about the process and things like that. And it's important too, because when coaches, I think if you take the second part of that definition to take you somewhere where you want to go, not where I want you to go. I think that's where coaches get lost because like, that's where we're talking about. If we're talking about a creative process and and an athlete wants to be a state champion, Olympian, whatever it is, like I can't impose my, my things on them. Like they have to figure that some of that stuff out on their own. And I think it's about where they want to go and they have to put in the effort and have to do the thing. Like I'm just there as a guide to help them facilitate that and maybe figure out things that they couldn't figure out on their own. Yeah. And it's kind of difficult to guide someone if you're not getting that feedback. Like how do you know, like my, my opinions or not even opinions, my goals might change and you would never know that the goals change if you never got the feedback to sort of like listen, you know, through that process. So I think, you know, you said difficult. I would say curious, but <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just phrasing no, like I, know, I, guess, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I know who I am. Um, yeah. But no, I think that like honestly, just realizing that that was an important part of my process, and this might be different, right? A good coach, and you might have been a good coach for someone else because they needed someone to kind of give them step one through five. I think yeah. you saw that's, I was that kind of athlete that needed that feedback that needed to understand because for me, I am cerebral before I'm visceral and that's just how I am. It's how I've been with in every area of my life. So if you want to get to the athlete, you have to get to the human behind the athlete first. And I think you understood that, okay, this athlete needs to understand what the heck she's doing before she tries it. And I think that 
being in that, like you said, having that buy-in and being able to trust is what allowed me to get to those places because I said, well, this person wants exactly what I want. I want to understand what I'm doing and they want me to understand what I'm doing. So we're on the same page, we're aligned. And I think that that alignment is what's most important from coach to athlete. And you have to align differently with different athletes and you figured out that's how I would align and that's how it worked for us. Awesome. Thank you. What did I do wrong? If you get, if there's anything that sticks out in your head like that, like, damn, I can't believe he, he I did mean, that. I mean, you showed up my junior year. Like, where were you at? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, like, obviously, like, we, I think everything, I wouldn't change the way it happened at all, though. Because even for a while, I, like, I think you, even in the story you told, for a while, my junior year, you were still just the throws coach. Like, that happened late. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like probably started working with you in like maybe March or April because indoor season, I was going to see a coach. I was like leaving school at the armory, the yeah. two hours to the armory and like working out and like being seen by that coach for like 10 minutes, yeah. <laughs> and then, like not getting the attention I needed, getting frustrated and like two more hours back home, then doing homework on the train. It was just kind of like, it took a lot out of me already. And I, not, I wouldn't say I was losing hope, but I figured that I was probably going to be alone in this and I was going to figure this out, which I feel like is foreshadowing for a lot of like my, like, you know, track and field career. I think a lot of yeah. athletes go through that at some point. So I got to practice early, but I think just seeing you later on, like really buy in, I'm really telling you something good that you did. I'm supposed to be finding something bad. <laughs> <laughs> like seeing that you bought in, like even that late in the season, I think is kind of what, I, I remember very vividly Borough Champs at South I forgot the name. South Shore. South Shore, yeah. I remember that very vividly. I don't remember the name of the girl who was like three years older. Oh, the first girl from Mega Evers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember her name, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going there and jumping thirty eight ten and it being like this huge deal, like, oh my gosh, like I I'm sixteen, like I just jumped this really crazy jump. You know, that was that was kind of what got me a lot of attention, the schools and stuff like that, too. So I remember that very vividly and just being just feeling like you had really bought in to that process. So that was exciting. But, yeah, I'm trying to find something bad. Give me like another. <laughs> uh, so as the conversation goes on, she's just going to come out with something like, in the middle of the conversation. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So moving on. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll progress this a little bit. So Amani, we went through, I, I think I told somebody this the other day, like we went through her whole senior year and I don't think we, we lost a meet. Like, I don't think she had come like not first in any of the competitions we did. And in some of them, we didn't even jump. Like we jumped one jump and be like, all right, we're good. And we just leave. Yeah. I don't, think I, <laughs> yeah, I, don't I didn't. Yeah, I don't think I don't think her senior year she had lost a meet. And in New York City, track and field is is highly competitive. And then we went to the states and and won indoor states, won outdoor states. And obviously, being of like we talked about before, very intelligent. You saw the her her lineage, right? We had, you got University of Kentucky, you got Penn, you got Cornell, and then she follows in you know in, in a similar fashion and goes to Princeton, which is another Ivy League school, and to, to jump and also obviously continue her education, and then. We had talked about our kind of relationship. She goes into a jumping uh, a school that is probably more competitive in the distance type stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, it was not a jump school. Let's be real. Yeah, it wasn't a jump. It wasn't a jump school. <laughs> I, I and uh, record, I think my first meet there. Yeah, so she had jumped a school record early. So she was she was kind of hyped initially, and then as it progressed, 
her experience was less than ideal um, in terms of jumps. I think she might have had a, a couple of different coaches. Also, your coach, had, your original coach, had left. Yeah, after my sophomore year. Your sophomore year. So then, you know, and we're talking about like building like that athlete, that athlete coach relationship is super important in being in alignment and having all these different things with your athlete. And then having to have a couple different coaches, you know, over that time frame, you don't get that chance to, to really get in alignment with them. And especially if they're, you know, not there for the right reasons or, or everyone's kind of like, you know, maybe having some difficulty working together. So, I mean, just talk about like, did you get better at Princeton or do you feel like you got worse at Princeton or kind of just like stayed the same? As an athlete, just like a, as as an athlete, yeah. Yeah, as an athlete, okay. I, I would say Princeton is where I learned more about myself and like that I had what it takes mm-hmm. than because I had more belief in myself than what showed on paper. Um, and so I had, I think I went in, somebody use meters because this is easier, I feel yeah. like. You can do meters, go ahead. We'll figure it out. Okay, you go. <laughs> Have your Google ready. To- yeah, I got it. I jumped 1279 out of high school, which is, you know, pretty competitive, especially I think at that, that year I was either fourth or sixth in the country leaving high school. And then I jumped 1291 leaving college, which is wild. There's, I think it was a, it's, a, it's like a four, like five inch difference, five like inch four. difference yeah. in four yeah. years which is unreal after coming from gaining a whole foot, a, like a semester, yeah. <laughs> like while I was in high school and that frustration of going back and back, like after my sophomore, I'll be honest, from a track and field perspective, I was going to transfer. I was getting everything ready. I remember a really long, like in the like sent, you know, campus center, long conversation with my mom, like after midnight where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't care about the school stuff. I need to be an Olympian. I, and like my goal it, coming out of high school was to be a 2012 Olympian. So I was just kind of like, it's 2012, <laughs> you know, yeah. things aren't looking too great. And so I was ready to transfer. And I was talked out of it because I, I had an, another coach coming in that next season. So that's kind of was like my encouragement. And I improved a little bit, but in, it was like really hyped up because at Princeton, it was still a big deal how far I was jumping. But it wasn't, I knew my potential was much greater. And I actually credit my lack of improvement at Princeton to why I'm still going now. Because a lot of athletes that I think probably would have been really talented as professional triple jumpers kind of got the excitement in college of like the improvement and sort of got that high out of it that they didn't really feel the need to continue on after. I don't really understand completely the reasoning for stopping because I, I don't have that reasoning. But I think having that experience there made me know, I was like, well, first of all, that's not who I am. I know who I am because I saw what I was able to do in high school and coming out, I was like, okay, well, I believe in myself. I just have to convince enough people outside of it to find the coach that can actually get me there. And my first year out, I, so that was 1291, didn't touch 13 meters in Princeton. I coached, actually coached myself to that 1291. I hit it right at the end of my college careers after my college coach that year told me I'd never improve. And then I did. Ouch. So I was just like, okay. Talk about things you don't say to an athlete. Right. He was like, yeah, you're probably not going to get past 1291. I was like, you don't even know me. So Yeah. You don't know me? You don't even know me? Like, <laughs> 
So I, when I like coaching myself to that, I think was like the biggest catalyst. Then I just started, I would say that's when I started just betting on myself. I traveled, I used all my savings from college and traveled to California actually to see about a coach in that Olympic training center in Chula Vista, which is so funny. Cause now years later, I just like compete there all the time. Like, Oh yeah, this place. But I was yeah. like, that was the first time I, I didn't actually end up working with the coach that was there. Cause that coach blew me off. But going out there and betting on myself, I met people. I met like that's when my my process of knowing how to take professional um, track and field seriously started. My first year out, I jumped thirteen twenty four, which was like already a foot on top of what I did in the five inches in four years. I mm-hmm. went to another coach, which we can get into in a bit, who was good coaching wise, terribly human. But I ended up jumping a lot further. My first meet there, I was thirteen forty. I ended that year jumping 1402. So in a two-year span, I was able to gain <laughs> a half a meter, which is a yeah. foot and a half, right? Yeah. yeah, like almost two feet in two right. years, where I gained five inches in four years. So that kind of started me off knowing that, like, yeah, I have the sauce, I have the juice. Like it was never me; it was really just not being aligned with the right people. So although like I've moved coaches a couple of times, I know every time I move where my center is and what my value is before I go to that coach. And I think I learned that from being at Princeton and not having, you know, the coaching support that I needed. And, and I think what's very important, I think that it could, we, we can, I'd like to talk about it a little bit more. So I find, like, I think a lot of folks you were saying how, you know, they get the, they go to college, they have those improvements, they get that high, yada, 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 and then they just stop. But you, yeah. you're you here and you're saying like, nah, I, I didn't improve, which is fine. I mean, not really fine because I would be frustrated too. But you're super frustrated and you, you have this like internal desire, I am better than this. And yeah. like I need to like prove it to myself that – I am better than this and I need to do something to figure that out. What is that? Like that's that resilience inside of you. Like, what do you, do you have any, are you reflective about that? Like where that comes from? I know you talked about Princeton was like one of those places where kind of like made you do some, we, we talked about it earlier, the ugly work or that hard work to be like reflective and be like, you know, I'm not just the, this 12, nine jumper. Like I, this can't be it. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm so I, at the time, like when you went to Princeton, you were still really new to triple jump. You know, like in the grand scheme of things, like you had only been doing it like really, you know, like for a year and a half, right? you know, and you were jumping so crazy. And then obviously it shows because then you go up tremendously. But being such a like, quote unquote, a baby in in a field or a sport, you have these like opportunities for tremendous gains and tremendous progress. And, you know, where was the the resilience inside? Like where do you you attribute it to anything? I feel like I supposed to have like a really good answer here no you don't have to it's okay (laughs) honest i'll be honest it comes from different places one you know i'll start with your cliches you know my family is bomb like my family is so i am so grateful and so lucky and so blessed like you know my parents they showed up at every meet like they were never not at a meet with food you know what i mean (laughs) they were all the way dialed in and like i always used to think about like track parents i even look at like track parents now the ones that you know sort of show up and like you know caravan all the kids to the meet i never saw them as track parents i saw them as whatever i did it doesn't matter if it was track and field 
if it was badminton, it doesn't matter what it was. It could have been just chess. And they did the same thing because I was in, in school. I was, a, you know, a very academic, you know, I was a scholar. Right. So at debates, they did the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I just had a support system that wouldn't allow me to even think that I should quit. And they've stayed true. They've stayed, you know, real this entire time, like even now. And I think that like having that and knowing that like I never had the pressure of someone saying like, oh, you should, you're 25 now. Like, what are you going to do? Like, I mean, yeah, they asked me like, are you going to grad school a bunch of times? And I've told, told them like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, yeah. But I think having the support that I always knew that my parents would be, would have my back no matter what push me so i'll give them like they deserve all those you know accolades and, and shout outs some of it's god i hate saying it like that it's a lot of it is god <laughs> <laughs> i was good in my head that sounded a lot better than how it came up but i i think i was gonna say some of it is god but what it what it really is is that i have I don't know. I've been blessed to have like the self-talk to, to know when I need to pray, to know when I need to like, I'm like, okay, I got to buckle down. Like this is time for me to like get out of my head and actually like really believe in myself. And I think that a lot of that, it comes from prayer, comes from meditation, comes from like that positive self-talk I just mentioned. Other than that, I don't know where it comes from. I think I'm just, just built different. I'm just built different. I've been a dog. Like I've been this way and I don't know. I've been a competitor my entire life. I used to race little boys in elementary school and like wipe the ground with them. And that brings me joy. And I think that, (laughs) (laughs) and I think that has been like a part of my fiber since I was that age. So I feel like some of it is, you know, from prayer. Some of it is from family. Some of it's from, it's like my support system. And the rest of it is just me. Yeah. And I think, you know, because people talk about this too, and I've never I've never personally uh, received like that idea, like, oh, you can't do something, you know, from somebody. Other than that coach that you said at Princeton said it, like, oh, you'll never jump more than 12, 9. Do you remember any other person saying like, nah, you can't do this? Like, don't don't even bother. Do you, do you remember anything like that? That kind of was like a driving motivation. Be like, nah, of course, I'm going to prove you wrong that I'm, I can do this. Right. Um, I would say... Not in those direct words. He was really bold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not in those direct words. And I remember for for a while it was like, oh, I got to prove her wrong. And then I was just like, this man is a non-factor. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, he doesn't work at Princeton anymore, so I'm not even like bashing Princeton. But yeah. it's just like, you know, I think that at the time, like you said, you don't say that to, to athletes. No, for um, sure. Or maybe you do if you want them to go and jump fourteen twenty-two. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that that. Like we had talked about before, depending on the athlete you're working with, you have to understand like what motivates them and then yeah. how to motivate them. Like if, yeah. like sometimes, I remember there was a there was a time when I used to talk to you about other people's performances. I don't know if you remember this, but you would be like, "Yo, like that." I don't like seeing that. Like that used to, for whatever reason, like you didn't like seeing how how far other people were jumping. I remember looking at the state rankings and we were talking about somebody. We were going to states and we were talking about a girl from Long Island who was jumped close to you. You were like, yeah, I don't like to look at all that kind of stuff because it kind of, I don't know if it made you anxious or did whatever, but I stopped talking to you about other people's performances. I thought it was like some, a way to like motivate you to see what other people were doing. Yeah. And then I think you were like, nah, I don't, we don't want to, <laughs> nah. I don't want to see that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like don't, don't show me that stuff anymore because, you know, and that's the, that's the kind of thing like we're talked about before, like having that relationship with your athlete and to you know like, kind of what motivates them and what demotivates them. 
Yeah. You know, and like some, like for me as an athlete, like I used to have football coaches who would like yell at me and like yelling at me is probably the least effective method to motivate yeah, me. Like I, I just, I just think I'll be like, screw you. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. Like yelling at me is not the effective way for me personally. Finding what that, that relationship is with your athlete, what motivates them. And then you can try to figure out like, okay, what methods or what things should I say to them? What things shouldn't I say to them to get them to get their best performance? Right. No, yeah. it's funny you say that too, because that might still be me. <laughs> I might, yeah. I think I'm grown up more, but you know, but I think that like, I was even thinking, how was I a different or how am I a different athlete now than I was then? Yeah. And I think that some of it is, you know, a lot of it is confidence, like going yeah. into a meet, knowing that I can jump the world record today. It just might happen. Like, you know, like that kind of confidence, I think, is a little different than in high school where it was still like exploratory. Knowing, like you said, knowing who you are as an athlete and that might change like over time. Like I think it for has. Sure. But knowing who you are as an athlete and being able to advocate for yourself is, I think, like something. I mean, a coach can't do that. I think athletes have to figure that out on their own. Coaches, I think. And I think that I think that you like intrinsically, you know, encourage me to figure that out. But mm-hmm. I think coaches should definitely try to figure out or try to encourage their athletes to figure out who you are, what it is that you do like and don't like, and what are the things that sort of motivate you and and push you further. And, and what are your goals too, right? I mean, goals, what are your triggers? Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, because I had a coach that would thought it was working, but like would yell like, "You can't do it on the runway! Like you can't do this! You can't do whatever, whatever!" And I, was <laughs> like, I was like, "Are you trying? Are you trying something new?" Yeah. <laughs> like, are you do you like some reverse psychology? Because I was just like, one, maybe right now I'll fight through that. But to me, especially as a psychology major, like that was creating more cognitive dissonance than it was creating, you know, positive affirmation that I needed to get down that runway on that jump. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. Yeah. And so I feel like it, it's more important to figure out that athlete before you try to just throw all these different like stimuli to them. Because now I'm just like, I got to like, I know he's trying to encourage me, but also does he really mean that I can't do it? Or, you know, I'm yeah. trying to figure out too much. And right now I just want to jump. Exactly. Um, you have that too much. Yeah, exactly. Too much going on upstairs. Yeah. So I think that's really important to figure out your athlete and for your athlete to figure out themselves. Yeah. So we're at this, we're in your timeline here. We're at this other coach where you had, you went to trials that year too, correct? Which year? The, when you, with the other coach from, where were you in North Carolina? Where were you at that time? Uh, Nashville, yeah. I went to trials in 2016. Nashville. I, was, I am now a two-time fourth place yeah. <laughs> trial. Yeah. <laughs> two-time, two-time fourth place Olympic <laughs> trial uh, holder. And, and, yeah. and you had talked about that coach being a great coach, but a terrible human being. And I've been, I've read a newsletter in the last two days. We've been talking a lot about, I've been writing a lot about the coach aspect of it and, you know, and how coaches value certain things. And like, you know, like if you look at like a, like a sports team, a lot of times they make the captain the, the or the leader of the team is the best athlete. But just because you're the best athlete doesn't mean you're a good leader. And when you do sort of things like that, you value performance over the human being, like we talked about. So you can be a great athlete, but a, but a, but a poor human being and be a leader. That's not, that's not alignment and that's not a culture that you want to create. Yeah. So like you said, he's a great coach, but like a, a, maybe not the best human being. So then it turns into like maybe the situation, yes, he helped you perform better, but that ex- overall experience wasn't necessarily the best experience because some of the negativity that came from it. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I was so green to just like professional track and field. I was really excited to be working with an Olympian and someone who really had a, you know, it was a really solid group of, I think it was eight jumpers that were there. And we'd have like high school kids come in and out. But that was like my biggest step, you know, that I've ever taken for track and field. I mentioned how I flew out to California with all my money in 2014, made some more money. And then 2015, flew out with all my money and moved to Nashville. And that was like a big deal because, you know, it was my first time in the, well, I'd been in the South before, but first time like really living in the South. And for like a New Yorker, like that's a big deal. Like, oh my gosh, first time like really away from my family. Princeton was a train ride away. Like I would have to, I was not seeing my family as, as often as I was that year. And I was really kind of isolated, I would say, because, you know, my my roommate was a teammate. Like everyone that was in that space were the only people that I saw. They were my coworkers. Mm -hmm. They were my teammates. I ended up dating one. Like everyone was like in my life was in that group of people. And so I feel like that was kind of it could be the recipe for something great or if it wasn't the right people, not the best recipe for anything good, you know. And so that coach, he really like fostered this environment of negative competition. Um, he spoke down on us. I remember my first week there, just like crying in the car in the rain for like an hour <laughs> because of how, like, yeah. not even how hard the training was, but you know, how berating he was to be honest, just, mm-hmm. you know, talking down to us and, um, to me specifically. So for a while, I was just like, you know, I'll just get through this year. I'll just get through this time. And I didn't actually realize how much like my self-conscious, you know, my my self-confidence had taken a hit until much later when I started to tell people, because I wasn't talking to people about what was happening. I was like, yeah, yeah, he said that. Yeah, I was like, yeah, it's probably inappropriate. Yeah. And I didn't realize that that had really taken like a big hit on my performance too like who I was as a person. So it took a lot of time to get out of that. The end of this story, because I can talk about that more, but the end of this story is that, and I'm more open talking about it now, is that he ended up giving us like, you know, some like a list of supplements to take, which I thought was normal. I said I trusted him at that time. And I really was giving him, you know, trusting him with my entire career. Yeah, giving him the Um, reins. Yeah, giving him the reins because you know you know what you're doing. I'm I'm an athlete. I'm I'm supposed to be coachable. I'm supposed to be someone that understands. I one of the supplements he told us to take was had a banned substance in it, and I believe he knew um, about it, and you know kind of kept it under wraps because he spoke to other people about you know oh yeah we've got them on this thing we've got because I I learned this years later that yeah right right conversation with other people. And so after Olympic trials, you get tested. So they test the top four and I was fourth. And so I got tested and the test came back positive for the substance. And I was just like, what is that? I remember reaching out to him. He's like, yeah, I don't know what that is. It's probably like nothing. And it'll be like, if anything, three months. And I was at the time, I was like, three months? Like, what do you mean? Why am I getting banned for anything? Like, I didn't do anything. Like, I'm just listening to what you're saying. And then it became this whole ordeal with USADA, which is USA Anti-Doping or US Anti-Doping um, Association. You know, I had to get a LAR. This, it was this whole like really involved process where I also just had to get out of Nashville. Like it just wasn't, it was no longer like safe or like healthy place for me to be, which is why I left the whole grad school opportunity, everything there. So I ended up getting a one-year ban for that substance. Um, and part of the reason why it wasn't four years is because I told everything. I told the truth. I said, 
this is what happened. You know, I didn't even know about, I think I'd only been tested one time before that. I was like, I didn't even know about what USADA was before. I didn't know about a list. I didn't know where the list was, where to find it. And that was something I used to say is that like athletes, especially professional athletes, don't get a handbook. And we kind of talked about that before. Yeah, yeah. On parenting, you don't get a handbook on, you know, being a mom or, you know, being a husband or wife. And there definitely wasn't a handbook on how to like become a professional athlete. You just like keep competing or find a coach. And so I really didn't, I really had no information or insight on sort of all that you needed to know in order to be a part of professional track and field. So I think just being candid and honest about everything, they were, you know, lenient and were able to give me a one-year ban. Folks have gotten shorter, so folks have gotten longer. But that was my story. And for a long time, I felt tainted by that. I felt like I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was just like, my name is now associated with something that is not me, not, you know. And I was angry. I was angry at that coach. I was angry at the world. I was just, I, I became a shell of myself. And it took a long time. And I would say, like, even though it was track and field related, track is kind of what brought me back out of that. Being able to compete again, being able to, like, like that connection I had with my next coach, which is Lee Van Sands, being able to sort of like find that love again and have someone that trusts you and that like believes in you and like believes you. I think that was big because he supported me through all the emotional stuff I was going through. So that was a huge deal. Being able to come back and, and start training again, I think took me out of that. Awesome. Yeah. And sports can do that for us a lot of times and, and getting out, you know, maybe not realizing, like, I think sometimes that we're in a toxic environment, like this happens with all, all sorts of different aspects of life, whether it's relationships, you know, you know, coaching athlete is a relationship, but other different aspects of life where we might be caught in these toxic environments and we don't realize it until after the fact that we actually get out of them. And we, we take a step outside of ourselves and look right. and be like, oh, damn, like maybe I shouldn't have been doing all those things I was doing. But getting an opportunity now to, to move on and continue this journey and from Nashville, you moved to Atlanta, correct? Which is where you are now. Yes. And you found a new coach. Yep. Like, what, is, what does that process look like? How do you... It's crazy. How, yeah, how do you find... Like, because I had actually... I reached out to Imani, um, I don't know, maybe like six months ago. And I was like, yo, how do I how do I work with like high level athletes? You remember that DM or text? Mm -hmm. I, I was like, yeah. she's like, well, first of all, you got to move to where high level athletes are and they're not yeah. in upstate New York. So you better find like a big city, to, like hot Atlanta. <laughs> you got to go somewhere big, which makes sense, which makes sense because when you look at a lot of like, when you, if I'm on Instagram, I'm looking at a lot of guys who, who work with, you know, professional basketball players. A lot of them live in LA or, you know, like in South Florida or the places where a lot of professional athletes live. Like you got to move yourself there if you want to work with those people. So and obviously that, that makes a lot of sense. But so Amani relocated to another place. Did you relocate for the coach and for the training? Is that why you relocate to Atlanta? Actually, um, so uh, this story gets a little convoluted a bit too, because when I relocated, I, I moved with my boyfriend from Nashville mm -hmm. um, at the time. And so when we moved here, we were under the in impression that the coach that I, it's gonna, okay, follow me now. The coach that I This just, was a remote coach, right? Because you guys were getting the same program. I remember yeah. this. I remember this. Yeah. Right. But when I moved here, I thought I was going to work with Dwight Phillips, mm -hmm. who was just now my most recent coach. Mm. So when I first got to Atlanta, um, I came thinking that Dwight Phillips would be my coach. And we stopped hearing from him for a while. Like he just wasn't responding. And I don't know if he was busy. I don't know what happened. 
um, but we weren't getting responses. And then I literally went to Instagram and said, who is nearby? (laughs) (laughs) I found Lee Van that way. He was in Auburn, Alabama, which is a two hour drive from Atlanta. And so I reached out to him, just said, Hey, like if we could just come work out a couple of times, it doesn't even have to be like a you know full-time thing, but I need someone who has your eye and you're coaching some kids who were younger, I believe at the time. So it just started out as like, like driving down two hours. We'd like, you know, you know, create our own program probably and then drive down and then just work with you a couple of times. But like we hit it off. Things were getting like a lot better. Um, I started working with him while I was still not able to compete. So in 2017. Right. Um, and so 2018 rolls around and I started like competing again and I was still with him and still working with him. And that's when we sort of got even closer. Um, and I was driving, you know, I worked, I lived in one part of Atlanta, which is really outside of Atlanta in Conyers, driving to work in Smyrna. And then driving, so that was an hour and a half drive. And then driving two hours after work to Auburn, Alabama on like a random Wednesday, working out for two and a half hours, driving two hours back to Conyers. So it was really like, it was a lot. It was really taxing. Sounds like your early days of taking the the train to the armory. Yeah, taking the train. That's why I said I really like looking back now on this conversation. I prepared you for it all. I've been preparing for this my whole life. Yeah, there you go. Um, And like doing whatever it takes to get to the coaching and get to the support that I need. Um, and that will, I have another story about that even more recently this past May. So after that, um, I was hoping to train with, um, someone locally for my sprints the following year. So that was 2019 and then have Lee Van as my jumps coach, just because it was, it wasn't as sustainable to keep driving for sure hours extra a day. Um, and so, um, I had my best work, my best, you know, jump even thus far with Lee Van in 2018. Um, but then he ended up moving. He had a really good coaching job in Colorado. And so I was then working solely with Dwight Phillips. And that was the group that I was in most recently here in Atlanta. Um, you know, things started okay. You know, they started, I started working with him, I would say like late 2018. So like pretty much all of 2019 and then all of 2020 during the pandemic. And then again, into this year. And I just wasn't seeing the improvement that I was seeing, like with Lee Van, I wasn't seeing that progression. And while things were good, you know, relatively for a while, I had some pretty big fouls and some promising things. Um, I was just kind of like, I think I'm missing some cues. And we're six weeks out from Olympic trials. So I'm like really fast forwarding you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's fine. Sometimes it's just like, you know, like like the, the, the gentleman's article who we had referenced earlier, his, his article is titled The Mundanity of Excellence. And like how yeah. mundane and monotonous just like getting better at something is. So like there's not always like these really important things. Like there's just like times where you're just like yeah. grinding and doing the work. Yeah. So yeah. and that's what I was doing. I would say like anyone on the team would tell you that like showed up every day, present every day. Like and that's pretty much every that I will say you asked me about this earlier, like what kind of makes it different for me? I am able to show up and be present every day of training, every, like literally my entire life, even days that are like bad and I'm like sad or whatever. Training gets me out of that mood. Training gets me out of that. So I think I've just been lucky to have that, um, I guess, like relationship with the sport. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I'm Miss Go Hard. I'll like literally like, you know, 
run faster than people who sprint <laughs> like started running fast, like starting lifting heavy, cleaning 200 pounds, like started doing all kinds of stuff that I feel like um, were making me a better athlete, but we were missing a lot of the technical stuff. And so I was like, Hey, like, I just need to get some more help. I flew across the country to a coach in Chicago who I just, you know, had a, you know, Instagram, Instagram has gotten me all my coaches, which yeah. is probably, yeah. <laughs> probably like the answer to the question you just asked me. But, um, yeah, I started working with that coach for like a couple weeks. And then when I came back, I didn't have a coach in Atlanta anymore. And that's just how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just like, you know what, if anything I've learned from my career, I will always bet on myself and I will always go where I think the support is. And so now that coach in Chicago is my coach now. So, um, I'm, you know, I think that's kind of like that lesson. It's just like, you have to go where your support is. You have to go where I'll travel two and a half hours to Auburn. I'll travel, like I'll fly three hours to, or two hours to Chicago and train there for weeks. I'll do what I have to do to get the support that I need. And I think, um, that's kind of like what's been pushing me through this sport. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important that you're, like we talked about before, like you the the whole definition of a coach is to take you somewhere, right? That you can't get on your own. And if you don't feel like you're receiving that, especially, you know, in your position, you're, you're trying to be the best at something as a professional athlete. Sometimes as a high school athlete, like you, you definitely as a professional athlete have that flexibility to be able to be like, yo, this isn't working. Like I'm going to go find a coach that might be a better fit for me. As a high school athlete, you may not have that opportunity because you kind of like are stuck with in some ways, the person that's in front of you. Right. So looking at it from that perspective and I guess maybe taking this whole thing full circle and back, like what advice would you give somebody who's young into the, the sport or any sport and they have a coach that they may not feel the best about, but they don't have, you know, like a high school or, or college even, you might not have that flexibility to be able to remove yourself from that situation to be able to go find somebody else who, who's a better fit for you. Is there, is there something that you can think of or think about like your situation and your processes that you've gone through and what, what things that might be able to help you through some of those difficult times to be able to still make improvements or still bet on yourself and still be able to do certain things? Yeah. Um, first, I'm probably going to disagree and say like, I don't believe in being stuck. Mm-hmm. Just even thinking back now, um, I have never let my circumstance, money, there is a way, even when they're like, if money's tight, there's a way, right. you know? I, and I'm like, now I'm really grateful for this conversation because I'm thinking about it now because it's helping me through like my current process of just for like, sure. you know, figuring out my training. And it's like in high school, I was traveling the two hours to go to the armory. I was mm-hmm. doing that. I would, I think we were going to, I don't remember the name of that place with the rubber track. Um, oh, Pratt? Yeah, we were going to Pratt and like doing yeah. stuff out there. Like we were making it work, right? Mm-hmm. In college, like in the summertime, I was coming to you. I had traveled, I think, I don't even know. I, I, I was, I was, I found the resources, right? Yeah, I have a picture from us at the Wingate track. Yeah, stuff. At yeah. Wingate. We yeah, were doing yeah. that at like seven in the morning. It probably wasn't seven, but it felt really early. It was, was early though. I don't know how early. It was early. It was early. Like yeah. five in the morning. And then <laughs> and in in college, like, you know, I was doing that. And then my year after, 
I, even when I was with my first coach in New York, um, I had two coaches in New York actually who were, who were partnered, but even when I was with them, I traveled to Arizona. <laughs> I didn't even remember that until just now. And I went to work with a coach for five days out there. I went to California while I was with Lee Van. So even while, and I, even that I'm talking about Lee Van being like my, like one of my best coaches so far, even when I feel like I am somewhere, I'm always going somewhere else to get information. Mm -hmm. I'm just collecting data. That is what I am. I'm a data collector. And I think that as a high school student, if you're younger and you're, and you have that passion to get better at something, you can find that data wherever you need to find it. If it means you have to go somewhere, if it means you have to be on YouTube and um, like finding videos, I've had like athletes, like young athletes reach out to me on Instagram. Like you guys know what, you know, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all those things. I'm probably not even saying all the ones that people use now, but you know how to expand your network. And it's really just like athletic networking. I just made that up and I kind of like it. Yeah, it's I like it. Networking. You have to figure out where it is that you're going to get the data that you're going to get, what it is that you need, who to get it from, and you go get it. So I feel like there isn't really an excuse to say that you're stuck and this is your coach and this is where you have to be. If you really want the information, you can go and find it and get it and apply it. So, yeah, yeah I disagree. I, I disagree with myself now also. But, <laughs> thanks. Um, but what, one thing that I, I did want to talk about, because so the, th the thing that you said before is like you went to Chicago to go meet another coach and you worked with him for like a week. And then when you came back to Atlanta, your other coach was no longer your coach. He was no longer. Yeah. Right. So that is the risk that you might take as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because like if that coach feels some type of way about you going ego, and getting information, yeah. huh? Right. And I said it's ego. And I think, yeah. you know, it's understandable because I feel like if you're a lot of coaches are in, in track and field because it it feels good to have to, to think you created someone. And so there's ego involved, right? Yeah. That Always. risk was there. And I knew I that mean, I think, was You know, what's kind of funny is that like we talk about ego and I, I – like I, we talk about Instagram and I follow uh, a couple of business owners and like different things. Like if you are like, we, we both have, have pretty big egos, relatively speaking. Right. If we think about like, if you're trying to be in the Olympics, like you have to have some sort of ego, yeah. right. If you want to own a business and be an entrepreneur, you have to have some sort of ego, yeah. um, not ego in like a negative way. Like, Oh, I'm the best That's person in the world. And I, and yeah. Right. But, but in order to be successful, I think like, Michael Jordan wasn't the best basketball player because he was passive. It's because he thought he was the best basketball player in the world and he worked his ass off to be able to do it. So yeah. you have to have some level of an ego. It doesn't have to be like that negative connotation of an ego. But like, yeah. I think all of us who are trying to be the top of our field have to have some level of an ego to be able to be like, I feel like I can do this and I'm in that position to be able to do that. Yeah, you got to be a little crazy to, to, to keep going. Like crazy in the sense <laughs> that like, so sometimes I have this thought, like, who am I to think that I can be one of the best triple jumpers in the country, in the world? Yeah. Like, who am I, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, I'm Imani. Like, I have a response to it. And if you have that question in your head and you can't respond with yourself, then it's probably something that you think that's the self-confidence. That's, that's the stuff that you want to work on. And that is ego. Um, yeah. I literally had this conversation with someone, like a friend, two nights ago about how we often bash that ego is like what stops us from doing things and why we shouldn't do things based on ego when ego is what makes us human. It what makes us sentient beings, right? Yeah. It's what makes us different. I mean, I hate to, you know, not even trying to be like an animal kingdom, kingdom elitist, but it's what makes humans different from blowfish, right? Yeah. Like we are sentient beings. We know that we have 
you know, there's a meaning, we have a purpose, we have a reason for being here and that's your ego. Yeah. And so, yes, it can drive you to do things that are probably less than ideal for other humans and probably not make great decisions, but it also is what makes you um, driven. It's what makes you have ambition. It's what makes you believe in yourself, right? So you need ego to keep moving forward in life, to keep your purpose, to keep your, you know, your drive and your dream to do things. So I don't even think that's bad, but the only issue is when your ego stops you from seeing um, opportunities and it stops you from seeing because you're so it's a it's more of a you can be self-centric without being self-centered mm. right so you're more you're 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 putting yourself at the center of your own you know universe and your story but self-centered is more like no one else can be <laughs> affiliated with that center right? right and i think that's the kind of ego that's negative um so like like i said like you know Ego is kind of what stops me, you know, stops you from sort of like seeing those opportunities. And I knew that that would be a risk when I went to Chicago. I knew it would be a risk when I went to Nashville and I lost my New York coach when I went to Nashville. So like, I have seen this happen before. Um, so I understand like, you know, for coaches, it's personal and, you know, your athlete feels like they are not getting what they need. But I think I'm going to be a coach one day. And I've thought about this a lot of times, like what would I do if my athletes said they weren't getting what they need and that they're not even trying to leave, which is what I told my coach here. I was like, I'm not even trying to leave. I just want to get the data and come back so that we can have something else to train with. Right. Um, I'd be receptive. I, I would honestly be receptive because I'm not coaching so that I can be the best coach in the world. And so I can like prove to other coaches that I coach this athlete. I truly believe that, I want to coach because I want to bring that out of other people. And if that's what's helping you, and I think that's where we've aligned, you and I, and I think that's where like even Levan and I, because Levan and I were just kicking it in the Bahamas two weeks ago. I feel like that's those are the relationships that I've kept because those are coaches that genuinely wanted to see the best out of me as a human. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think coaching is about. Not yeah. about saying I'm a good coach. It's about saying you're a great athlete. Let's like, let's showcase that. And I, and I think that that we talked about this off air right before, and we're going to bring it full circle here because uh, Amani had talked about before one of the biggest things that she learned as an athlete is to have empathy and to be able to learn by watching and being a part of other people's processes yeah. as opposed to just her own process. Because she was talking yeah. previously about, you know, uh, an athlete who was injured, who got written off, blah, 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 blah and just being in the, the process, maybe not like directly like helping her through the process, but like seeing it firsthand and, and being in, in like a fly on the wall in somebody else's process is, is very, is an important part of the, the, the deal. And you learn a lot just by in, in doing that. And I think what's important is if you are receptive as a coach and Hey, every coach has a different approach. Every coach has their own perspective on certain things and every coach has something to gain from talking with other coaches. So if an athlete does want to go over there, like I think like all of these different things like Imani had talked about is all based on conversation. So like if Imani had come to me, you know, being I'm older now, like maybe initially if I was younger and a little bit less confident about my own skills, I might be defensive and, and have feel some type of way about it. But now, like, as you get older and be understanding, like, well, and we talked about this before, the more, and she was like, I don't know anything. I'm just kind of like trying to do the thing here. So I'm struggling, just trying to figure it out. And as you're trying to figure it out, like we should all be trying to figure it out and get better in some way. So if that coach knows something that I don't know, 
like it can only enhance my coaching um, right. and enhance. Then if I can enhance my coaching, I can help my we'll athletes. Be yeah. yeah, we'll all be better. So I think like, yes, there is that competitive, that negative vibe that Imani kind of had in Nashville, that, that overly competitive stuff. And we have a lot of that, like, it's not, you know, not people don't necessarily improve from that. They improve, um, because everyone's trying to be the best, but then at the same time, like if we're all trying to be better, we bring everybody up a little extra notch higher. Yeah. And I think that like, like you said, it has to, you have to know where it's coming from. Like, Mm -hmm. why do you coach? Like, why do you, why are you, and why are you okay with people trusting their lives with you? Mm -hmm. Because that is, that can get heavy, right? Like that can be like, there's someone that comes to you with like a dream and that's really all we are here for as humans is to dream and to live out those dreams and to go through the process of chasing them. Right. It's not even mm-hmm. necessarily getting the dream, which is what I'm learning. Yeah. It's the process of chasing it. 100%. So if this person wants you on this process with you. That's an honor. Like if someone trusted me with that, that is like one of the greatest honors I think that you can get as a human for another human to trust you with their dream. Right. I, I even think that's even, I'm not a parent, but I'm, I think that might even be, I, I'm going to make a statement that parents might disagree, but <laughs> <laughs> that might be bigger than trusting someone with your child, right? Yeah. Because it literally came from only you. It's your dream, literally. It's something yeah. that you, your, your consciousness, your soul, that like literally concocted on your own. And you present it to someone and you say, hey, here it is. Like, can you just hold this really carefully? Then help and me. Me as I like continue to like hold it with me, yeah. And I think that that's a big ask, and to accept that ask as a coach, you have to be really careful with someone else's dream and really careful with what they've created and, and entrusted you with. Um, so I feel like coaches sometimes start that way, and if they they forget, um, like how like how much of a responsibility that is, and that's when I feel like when I say ego and I kind of just like write it off as like ego completely. I think it's really when coaches forget that someone's trusting you with their like soul child. Right. Yeah. Um, and to, to really be careful with that. And I think coaches forget why they coach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that might be part of it too. So I what's forget. next for, for Imani Oliver? What's next? I have a lot of things that I would say, I wouldn't even say I put them on hold, but I, um, slowed them down a little bit just because this was the Olympic year. Um, but I am recently a business owner. And so I'm starting my own business that I will talk about probably the next time invited. Yeah. <laughs> <on this podcast>. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am getting really excited and more, more into um, sports tech and sort of like blending my worlds together. Um, technology, like we talked about, um, I've been in the industry for four years. Um, in, in track and field. I've been in that industry for 12 years. Wow, even more than that. Yeah. Wow. 15. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a long time. And also just playing in education. And so I know you talked about it in my bio in the beginning, really just advocating for education, like STEM education for underserved communities. So awesome. I will talk more about it um, in a little bit, probably the next time I'm on here. But yeah. that I'm still training. Um, the next couple of years are going to be crazy because the pandemic smushed a lot of um, world championships into the same or like world games into the same year. Yeah. So usually like you have an off year, you might have an off season. 
the next three indoor and outdoor seasons all have championships allocated to them, which has oh, never wow. happened before. So yeah. I'm going even harder <laughs> than there I was before. I'm really excited to be with my new coach, Andy Pablo. He's based out of Chicago. So I start training in a month and a half, which I know seems really soon, but like, yeah, we're getting to it. We're not playing around. Um, and just, yeah, getting some, getting some of these world medals, some world championships. And continuing on right now, I'm still with Home Depot. And so just continuing on, that team has been really supportive of me, especially in like allowing my schedule to be flexible the last couple of months. So, yeah. And then honestly, I know I just said a lot, but I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so every day, every day I figure it out as I go. And that's, that's the way to be. Right. Yeah. We were talking about before having a, having a one, three, five year plan. And Monty says she does a five day plan, five days. Yeah. If she can get through the five days, we'll figure out the next five days after don't that. Don't ask me what I'm doing next Sunday. Cause I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> next Thursday. Yeah. I can figure it out. I can yeah. do it. Uh, so, so if people want to follow you, follow your journey, where are they, where are they checking you out mostly? They can check me out on Instagram right now. I post most of my content. Um, at a run for your money. When I came up with that name, I thought it was the most clever thing. Like, I still like <laughs> still, it. I still like it. Still proud of it. I was like, it's long. And like, sometimes when I tell people, they're like, what, how do I spell? Do you know how to spell a run for your money? Just like start typing it and I'll come up. Yeah. Start typing. Uh, she'll come up. And she's, yeah. yeah. Monty Oliver. She has a little star circle, Jamaican flag, American flag. Yes. That's she'll me. be there. She'll be there. Yeah. She's on Instagram. Check her out. Yep, that's my girl, Mark. Imani. I'll be sharing more on there as well, but you'll see that and you'll know more about it if you start following my Instagram. So that. Awesome. So that's Amani. I have me. so much love for her and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it and, and we'll, awesome. yeah. So thanks for hanging out for an hour and 10 minutes. It's a little longer one, but that's okay. We can talk for, yeah. I'm sure we could probably talk for like five more hours, <laughs> okay. but we're going right. to, we're going to cut it back. And Amani's already planning her next episode where we're going to talk about different things. She's already, she's yes, already yeah. hinted at it a couple of times. All right. Little All drop right, right there. Yep. Mic job. That's it. <laughs> Thanks again for hanging out for another episode of the Prime Podcast, where we do everything that we can to help you find your Prime. As always, we'd love some feedback and some reviews. So check it out. Get some reviews. Give some feedback. Show us some love. And we'll be back next week. Said I'm at my Prime.